You're listening to an episode of Welcome to the Teacher's Lounge, the podcast dedicated to honest conversations with educators about what they do and, more importantly, who they are. I'm your host, John LeMay, and I'm here to highlight the complex and rich lives led by teachers with diverse interests, identities, and stories. Hi there. Thank you for tuning in to this week's episode. I'm recording on the campus of Phillips Exeter Academy, where I teach during the summer, and this week's guest is one of my colleagues in the summer program. My conversation this week is with John Barton, who teaches architecture at Stanford University, in addition to serving as director of their architectural design program. John also teaches a course on the process of creativity here at Exeter during the summer. John and I discuss the way he challenges the power imbalance that can exist between students and instructors in the classroom, as well as how he's reimagined the way learning happens in architecture classes. We also just talk about why John believes the classroom should be a place of joy and collaboration, and how he tries to ensure that his students are healthy and happy people. John is someone I knew I wanted to have on the podcast from the minute I began developing it, and I'm really excited for you to hear what he has to say. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please consider recommending it to a friend and be sure to rate the podcast on iTunes or Apple Podcast and leave us a short review and let us know what you think. Feel free to also like us on Facebook or get in touch with us at welcometotheteacherslounge at gmail.com with any feedback or guest suggestions for future episodes. All right, let's get into my conversation with John. Enjoy! Hi, John. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I'm delighted to be here. So what I'd like you to do is go back to the very first day of school. And by that, I mean, I'd like you to, to the best of your ability, recall as much as you can from your first day of teaching, however you interpret that question. Okay, so my first day of teaching was as a graduate student at UC Berkeley. I was given a section of undergraduates to teach an introductory course in design. And there were 15, I think, TAs in that. I had 15 students and there were maybe 10 TAs. So it was a huge class, but I had primary responsibility for 15. And I was pretty terrified, but I tried not to show it. It was a relatively short class, three or four hours, but it was all one subject. Um, So it was fairly intense. I honestly don't remember what we did. Um, I had taken the course before, and so I had a sense of what they were working on and the possibilities of the project. Um, But it was a little terrifying, but within, with, I do recall that by the end of it, I was hooked that there was something magical about working with people and helping them to learn. What were you most terrified of? Probably just being perceived of as not knowledgeable. I was also, I felt the responsibility to impart knowledge. I don't feel that way anymore. Um, We can talk about that, I'm sure. Yes, Um, absolutely. um, But I felt that responsibility and I didn't know, I'd never done it before. So I didn't know if I could do it. And one of the crazy things about teaching, particularly at the university level, is there's no training. You're just just picked because you're a good design student, and it's assumed that you are thus a good teacher, which is ridiculous. Right. Now, 
do you feel like you were at least a fine educator at the very beginning or did you do you feel like you had to go through like those first few whatever weeks months years of kind of feeling like you're drowning and then you settle into some sort of routine or you kind of get the hang of it it took a few years to get comfortable and to understand how long things would take one of one of my later jobs a couple years later three years or four years later was teaching uh, interior architecture at a community college and one night I was giving a lecture and the course was three hours long and this very long lecture in my mind lasted 40 minutes and I had <laughs> nothing left to give so it took a long time to understand that some things take longer some things take shorter and to become comfortable with that and that probably took another couple of years so maybe five years and I began to feel like I knew what I was doing I always felt like I was good at it, but I didn't necessarily understand what I was good at. Sure. Yeah, you're, what you said about like what you thought was like a three-hour-long lecture was in actuality 40 minutes. Like That, that resonates with me so much because your sense of time when you first start teaching, and even, I guess, after you've been doing it for some time, it just becomes like super wonky and you just, you don't know how much time has passed or how much time anything is going to take, but your job is so reliant on time. Like you have a limited amount of time in which to impart knowledge or deliver a lesson or anything like that. But I feel like teachers have the worst understanding of it at the end of the day. Yeah. And it's, you learn, or at least I learned to have a toolbox of things that I could fill the time with and a set of goals for what, what I minimally had to get done. And then if we had more time, we could do more. If we had less time, we, at least we got done what we needed to get done. Right, right. So that, so you, you talked a little bit about like your first day of teaching as like an under, or as a, as a TA, like in teaching mostly undergrads. Do you remember like your first day of what you would consider to be like full-time teaching or like your first day in which you had like total control over the classroom? Or do you consider that experience as a TA to be that? As a TA, I had total control over the relationship with those 15 students, but the, I didn't design the, the exercises. Those were designed by a, a instructor who kind of flew across the, the, the sections. The very first course that I taught all by myself was at community college and um, that was w one of those early courses is one of the ones I described before of not having enough time not having enough material to fill it right but I think most teachers teach the way they were taught and so I tended to rely on the peculiarities of design and architecture teaching um, when I taught that community college course the other thing that was unusual about that, I was 30, 31 maybe, and most of the students were older people coming back for a certificate. So it's exactly the opposite of where we are at Exeter right now. So I was younger than my students, and that added a, a level of angst to the process. Yeah, of course. But I was perceived to be an expert, and it was one of the first experiences of being revered for the title without having to prove it there's something very validating about that in a sense though it does go back to what you were saying about like the way that 
at least at the time, and maybe this is still the case, but the way that like university instructors are selected, right? Like it's it's really based on like the title, on like what you've produced, like for scholarship or in your field or whatever. Um, so there's probably something very validating about like actually being revered, even though the people are much older than you. Mm-hmm. Um, I feel like n- not all, but many educators have that moment where they do feel validated for whatever reason, either it's because like they taught a particularly successful class or for any any other like some sort of like feedback you get from a colleague. I know I've definitely experienced that fairly recently for the first time, actually. But I'm interested in, yeah, in like that moment where you felt like you were actually revered. Do you think it was also because of the job that you were doing? The, the quality of the teaching? Yeah. I would, I would like to think that's the case, but I think there's something, there's a power differential in the classroom that has to be understood. Yeah. And the instructor is too often assumed to be right because they are the instructor. And I think that that crosses, clearly it has it's the case when they're younger students and older instructors. But looking back, it was clear that it was the case with a younger instructor and older students as well. I probably had to work a little bit harder to maintain that in retrospect. Um, maybe not. I don't know. That's a really in- That would be really interesting to sit down and explore. Yeah. I'm interested in what you said about like that power dynamic and that power differentiation, um, because I know that it's something that you personally, just based on my conversations with you, you really try to push back on um, and really try to sort of like you try to blur like those lines in terms of like the who has the knowledge and who has the expertise or whatever um, in your class, which is something we'll I definitely want to explore um, later on. But my 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 next question um, is when did you first realize that you wanted to be a teacher or an educator? Like, what was that the moment where it really all became clear or the series of moments? I think it was a series of moments. I can remember driving to work with my wife and being a little frustrated with my job. It was before I went to graduate school. And I said, I and think what, I what did... was what was your, the job? I was a, as an architect. Okay. And it was just one of those moments, you know, couple of years out of undergraduate where you're you're you pine for the academic life again and I said I think I just I think I want to be a teacher of architecture my wife said well you just go to graduate school we've talked about it why don't you apply Mm -hmm. and and I did so I think that was one moment and then sort of being validated in that first class of the joy that came with that and then beginning to understand the differences in different institutions. So I taught as an undergrad, as a graduate student, and then I taught at the community college, and then I got a gig at Cal teaching architecture at Berkeley for a couple of years. And then for a while I taught at San Jose State, and then I came to Stanford. And at one point I think I was teaching at the community college, San Jose State and Stanford all at the same time, and practice was kind of drifting back. I think somewhere in there, I realized that's what I really wanted to be doing. And I applied for some full-time tenure track positions, which I didn't get, um, thankfully, now, because I've got this great job at Stanford and mm-hmm. here at Exeter. But um, I think so, it happened gradually that I was that I enjoyed it and I was good at it. 
And at the same time, I began to see problems in the way I was trained and in the way I was teaching. I, they were nagging thoughts that weren't clear yet. Um, and over maybe the last five or 10 years, I began to understand what those thoughts were and try to change the way I teach and the way others teach around me. Where, where do you think that sense of dissatisfaction in the way that you had been trained and the way you were teaching, where did, where did that come from? Well, architecture education is pretty unique. Um, it's probably worth talking about. Typically in an architecture studio, it's a small class of about 12 to 16 students with an instructor who's typically a licensed architect or practicing architect or a theoretician. And he or she, and in my experience, it's mostly he's, walk around working with students individually at what's called a desk crit. And the student shows the master the work that he or she has done and gets feedback and direction on what to do next. And then there are juries at the end of the project in which the work is pinned up on the wall and architects are invited to come and comment on the work. And when I was an undergraduate, those many of those people felt their job was to make you cry and right. pretty unpleasant. And so, you know, there, as I said a few minutes ago, you tend to teach the way you were taught. And so I started teaching in the same way. I started doing desk crits and I started doing these juries and I wasn't selective about the people I was hiring. I was in some cases far too concerned about the jury's response to the student's work as it reflected on me rather than what the students were getting out of it. And I began to understand, began to look back and say, well, I hated desk crits. They were telling like me as what, a student, as a student, and I hated the juries. So why am I doing this? But these things are cultural. And, you know, one of the jobs of culture is to resist change. And, you know, maybe five or 10 years ago, I began to think, let's do this a different way. Let's be let's be happy in the classroom. Let's build community. <laughs> Let's take the fact that 12 students are working on the same project and talk about it rather than have the instructor go around. It's, it's a stunningly inefficient system to have yeah. the instructor go around one by one over the course of four hours rather than talking about the work that they're all doing. Right. And instead of seeing one process, it's always hard to see your own process, but you could see 11 or 14 processes and learn a whole lot more. And I began to move in that direction. Wow. And it sounds like I think a lot of these conversations about, you know, getting away from lecture based, like more instructor teacher centered education is these conversations have been happening for a while, like over the course of, I don't know, I'm just spitballing like 30, 40, maybe even 50 years. Um, But it sounds like, did you feel like that just wasn't something that like the architecture, ar- architecture like industry had caught up with, and that they had kind of fallen behind, or just had no like incentive to really change their like more lecture-based model of education. You know, architecture. If you read the literature for forty or fifty years, we've been talking about the need to change what we do, but we don't change. Right. And I think part of it is cultural. I think part of it is institutional. That the older guard did it their way. They don't want to change. They've got tenure. I'm oversimplifying the world, but I think there's components of it that are true. Sure. The younger guard are judged for tenure by the older guard. So they're not going to rock the boat. Right. Um, Right. 
and and so the the ideas perpetuate and what's amazing is the profession has changed radically not just technologically but in organizationally and yet we're teaching in this same master individual basis yeah that that tends to elevate the lone genius but nobody no architecture firm is a lone genius anymore right well and that's what makes it so interesting that you felt that desire to change because as a teacher there's probably something again very validating about inhabiting like that lone genius like uh space i guess like in your in your class like you're the ones who's like who's imparting wisdom and i think all educators could potentially fall victim to this and get very comfortable in that. And I think that I, I I can even, I feel that even in my own teaching, even though I haven't been doing it for very long, and even though I try to make it more student-centered, but there are definitely moments where I can see why there is that appeal of being like the center and sort of being the one who is imparting this wisdom and this knowledge and everyone just like adores because of your genius but or hates because you're mean and yes <laughs> and and for for many that's that's a goal yeah totally because it puts them further on the pedestal not and even if it's a negative way right but it's also interesting because it's i talked about it being inefficient but in some ways it doesn't even make sense to teach that way because at the end of the day, design is about solving a solving a problem while you're still defining it. And if I'm working with a student who is still trying to define the problem for themselves while they're exploring options, for me to interject into that process and tell them to do X, Y, and Z is probably counterproductive. If I can step back and have them explore different ways that other people are exploring the same problem, they can begin to grapple with that. Right. And so, in a weird way, I'm not sure it ever made sense. Well, maybe it did in the the Ecole de Beaux-Arts where it began, where the state-run schools were training architects in a state-sanctioned stylistic frame. Right. And so the master knew the style, knew the rules, and was imparting them. But the world doesn't work like that anymore. Right, right. It's very antiquated. So... I think we'll probably talk more about this in, in one of my my later questions about the ways that this is an inefficient way of learning and the way that it doesn't really serve our students particularly well. But I want to go back to something, kind of revisit something that you said about how educators learn to teach based on the way that they're taught. It's, it's something along those lines, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I want to know just what you were like as as a student really at any level, you can start wherever it makes the most sense. I think most people tend to start with high school, but if you want to go back any further than that, uh, I'd be really curious to hear about what, what John Barton was like as a, as a student. Well, maybe starting in high school, I came to Exeter uh, in 1974 as a prep or a freshman, and I was pretty socially awkward and not particularly well prepared by my public school, middle school for the kind of rigor and expectations of Exeter. A classic example of that is I'd taken two years of French, gotten straight A's in middle school, started French over, and managed to fail introductory French. Oh, my God. (laughs) Talk about a rude awakening. Yeah, it was a rude awakening. But I I learned how to learn here, and that made me less socially awkward in a weird way. Um, 
And by the time I got to Berkeley, I had gone through all the moving away from home many years before I knew how to get to a dining hall, where to, how to get laundry done, sure, um, things like that. And I felt pretty confident in, in what I was doing. And I knew I wanted to study architecture. I was not the best student. I wasn't always as motivated as I probably could have been. This is probably a, something that you've heard a few times from your, your <laughs> guests. Yes. Um, um, but I worked reasonably hard. I didn't always know why I was doing what I was doing, but I did it anyway. But I didn't do it with gusto in those, those occasions. There were a couple of teachers who took me under their wing and basically said, told me that I could do really good work um, if I just applied a little bit more effort and then validated that work. And mm -hmm. that, that turned things around for me. The value of a teacher who can metaphorically put their arm around you and say, you've got the potential to do X more and I'm going to show you how to do it and then yeah. validate that at the end is really powerful. Yeah. And I've always remembered those instructors and I've tried to emulate them when I can in my own teaching. Yeah, that makes sense. Now, it sounds like you really from high school to college and then to like where you are currently, you found yourself like inhabiting like these academic institutions that have like this clout to them and have like this sort of like elite status. But it, you talked about how when you went to Exeter, you didn't feel like you were really well prepared. Did you feel kind of throughout your time as a student, like this sort of clash in terms of either like where where you came from and how like well prepared you were for these schools and just finding yourself in this very high pressure culture? And did that like influence just the way that you comport yourself as an educator in any way? That's a really interesting question. I would say I was probably too oblivious at those first couple of years at Exeter to understand what was going on. By the time I got to Berkeley, I had taken in what Exeter could provide in terms of a way of learning and a way of using that learning to discern the world around me. Yeah. And I used it. Um, so I was much more comfortable with learning. I was more questioning than other people around me. Mm -hmm. um, I'm not sure I'm answering your question. Um, no, it, yeah, it definitely, it definitely taps into, I mean, the way that you adapt to that environment and also i guess like what you take away from these environments because you go for a specific reason i mean in the 70s like exeter had very much like established itself as like this you know in the academic world like this cultural force and i think uc berkeley was kind of the same thing so i'm always just interested in like what the takeaways are from that because i think there are so many great aspects to being at those kind of institutions and learning there but it's a very particular environment that can also have negative effects on people um, and can make people realize some of like the, I don't know, some of the inequity that exists or just the fact that like certain models don't work for certain students and that sort of thing. Certainly Exeter was a much more diverse place than I'd ever been before. And I knew about Exeter because my dad had gone here. Um, there was, we didn't talk about privilege in 1974 the way we talk about it now. Sure. But certainly I've had an extraordinarily privileged education. Not very many people get to go to Exeter and Berkeley for undergraduate and graduate uh, school. And 
it was just it just a simpler time too in a lot right. of ways at least maybe that's part of the privilege maybe it wasn't simpler for others but i think that those experiences have carried over particularly the exeter experiences carried over into the way i approach the world it's made me less concerned about change more tolerant um i've probably become more tolerant over time rather yeah. than less tolerant um, I don't know if that's true for other people as well. And I think that comes back to that kind of quality education that I got at Exeter and then followed up with at Berkeley. Sure. That makes sense. Well, and at Exeter, I assume that's where you were introduced to the Harkness method. Is that is that correct? Yes. Would you mind talking a little bit about what the Harkness method is? Because I think you're the first person on the on the podcast for whom this kind of like has like such a huge like implications in, in in your life so i'd love to hear just like defining for our listeners i guess what the harkness method entails for me it's both a philosophy and a pedagogy and start with the pedagogy the, the simple part is you've got a small group of students usually no more than 12 or 13 sitting around a table with an instructor and the table is intentionally and edgeless so that everybody is in, at an equal point and can see everybody at the table. And the instructor tends to be not so much the master and imparter, but rather a facilitator. And in a good class of experienced students, the instructor can say very little. I tend to use Harkness now teaching at Stanford, and I will start most classes along the lines of, where do you want to begin? Or what should we do today? What do you need to do today in order to move your projects along? And then we'll have a discussion. Um, high school students probably need, at least at the beginning, need a little bit more. Mm -hmm. But even a kind of, what did you think of the reading? Some kind of open-ended question that doesn't impart bias from the instructor and makes claims of agency for the students to be in control of what they want to talk about. That's the, the sort of basics of it from a pedagogy point of view. But I also think it's philosophically about a way of looking at the world and a one in which your world opens up by exploring it in a way that makes sense for you at that time. And that the diversity at the table allows me to explore the world in the way that works for me, but to hear what other explorations are happening and opens up doors and challenges assumptions uh, about the text or about the world and assumes that students are wise enough and able enough to be in control of their education. And I think too few schools trust their students enough to do that. Yeah. So it really reinforces like the agency of the students and the ability to navigate whatever the topic is, to effectively engage with each other, not just with the instructor. Absolutely. Uh, and I think that engagement with the instructor is the engagement with each other rather than the instructor is the core component of the pedagogy. Some of my best Harkness classes is, I will say, 20 words. Yeah. In the course of, <laughs> in some cases at Stanford, in the, over the course of three hours. Right. And they just go. Yeah. It's like magic. It's pretty awesome. So... How did you adapt to that style of learning? Was it something that you took to really quickly? I know for me, like I, I had my introduction to it by being a, a student, a student in the the summer session at Exeter, which is where we currently are. Um, and for me, it was just like a it 
rocked my world and in all the best ways possible um but how how was like your adjustment to that style of learning at one of my i think my reunion five years ago one of the uh one of my classmates said john you're talking a lot at this reunion i can remember it took you two years to say something at the table (laughs) and i was pretty quiet i wasn't comfortable um talking and i wasn't I mean, I, I told you I was pretty clueless and socially awkward. And I don't think I really understood that I was being invited to participate. Oh, interesting. Were you kind of waiting for the invitation in a sense? I just didn't see myself in the same category as these students who were able to talk about Greek history. Sure. I was struggling to understand what the reading was, let alone under, be able to pull out questions. Um. And, you know, I'd been taught through an open brain pouring information, and it's a radically different approach. Now, by the time I was a senior, I was a regular participant at the table and uh, in the dorm, and something clicked. I don't know what it was, um, but I felt capable and interested and able to participate and to take risks, which I wasn't yeah. willing to do before. Sure. You know, Harkness is not one way of doing it, and it changes over time. It may even have a pendulum component to it. I don't know. But in those days, the instructors were aloof, and, they, and it was part of the staying back and giving agency to students. But it, it manifests itself sometimes as aloofness. So instead of taking me aside after class and saying, hey, I'd love to have you hear your voice at the table, it just showed up in a mark at the end of the, or a comment. Right. And I think now we were much more likely to take a student aside and say, we'd love to hear your voice at the table. Here are two ways to think about approaching that. Yeah. And providing some tools to do that. There was no, there was no training on Harkness. It just, it just was. Yeah. So there's a lot more intentionality about it now. Yeah. Which I think is, I think in general, I think educators, people who work on developing pedagogy and all that kind of stuff, I think that idea of intentionality is something that we're just thinking about more and more of just doing things like with an actual purpose and not just because it's how they've always been done or anything like that. So I think that level of intentionality is something that like, at least it resonates with me as I think about you know, whatever I'm doing, like whatever the next step is, like actually having a purpose for it and actually thinking about what is going to best serve the students and allow them to feel more comfortable and more invited into whatever the activity is or whatever the classroom dynamic looks like. I think that the way we're teaching in Harkness now is more Harkness-like. It's that that invitation has to, that assumption of participation and assumption of agency is not enough. Yeah. For some students, they have to be invited. They have to be given permission. And particularly, we see that in the summer school, as I'm sure you do, where students who come from cultures where challenging ideas is can get you in big trouble. Right. And to be at a table where the instructor isn't going to share his or her opinions can put you in a really potentially dangerous position. Um, and they have to be invited in and told that they're not going to be penalized for trying something and sharing an opinion. 
Yeah, and that that requires us as educators to challenge our own assumptions, just like we encourage our students to do that about, you know, that that's a big part of what Harkness is, is yeah. putting our assumptions out there and, and leaving them kind of at the door or or bringing them to the table and, and allowing the students to grapple with those assumptions and tell us how we may be mistaken or, you know, allowing them to challenge us in that sense. And that's one of the cool things about Harkness is I always come out of class learning something that I didn't expect to learn. Yeah. A different way of approaching a problem, a different way of looking at something is like, wow, I never thought of that before. <laughs> it's so cool. Yeah. It doesn't get much cooler. Um, I'd love to talk a little bit about how we fail our students as teachers or when we fail our students as teachers. You can think about this either like in a more like micro aspect, like thinking about what we as individual teachers and individual classrooms can do that will fail our students. Um, or you can think about it in a broader aspect, like how, you know, education practices are failing students. Like you've already kind of tapped into this idea a little bit, but I'd love to just hear from you, like what you think of when you think of what it means to fail our students. Yeah, I, I think I'll take it from both the macro and and more focused point of view. On the macro point of view, I certainly saw this. I was a school board member for eight years in Palo Alto, California. And I was a school board member when No Child Left Behind was passed by Congress and signed by President Bush. Mm -hmm. And when we got the first presentation, I was appalled. Presentation <laughs> from staff. And I saw that this was a testing regimen and that we were going to reduce student performance to test scores and that schools were going to be rated on how students did on tests rather than how they how humane the education was or how um, portable the knowledge imparted was and it just seemed like a disaster and i think it has been a disaster and i think we fail students when we turn education into units to be uh, uh, consumed and then expect them to parse those units together into something usable uh, without giving them any tools to do that. Right. And I see it in the students that come to Stanford. To get into Stanford is not something, it's not risk-taking is not part of going getting into Stanford. You don't go out and drink on Friday night. You don't right. steal cars. You don't. Right. Um, and so they come to Stanford having learned how to check all the boxes, finding out how many points for this and how to get an A on that. And then you throw them a design problem, which is open-ended, and you tell them to try something, and they don't have the skills to do that. And they learn them quickly, because everybody can, and they're Stanford students. But I think it's a real shame that we've taken a generation of kids and said, your education can be reduced to a number for you and a number for your school. And... And even contradictory ways, one of the years I was on the school board, one of our schools was considered one of the best schools in the nation, in the state of California at least, by one test measure. By another test measure under the federal rules, we were in the needs improvement category because <laughs> right. we hadn't tested enough of the different subgroups. People began to take their kids out of the testing. And it was a school affiliated with Stanford, and, and people were often there for just a year with their kids from mm -hmm. foreign countries. 
and so we didn't test enough of some ethnic subgroup and we were thus considered a needs improvement school. So parents were getting mixed signals as well. So I think that's one area. I think we also spend a lot of time rewarding students and rewarding students is problematic. There's nothing, nothing inherently wrong with rewards, but it's what they do. Um, because they turn what could be an intrinsic motivation for education into an extrinsic motivation. And when it's extrinsically motivated, you only do what you have to do. You don't get in deep into the subject. You don't develop passions. You don't take risks. And so when, if you can get an A by cleaning the beakers in the chemistry class to right. overcome a C on a paper, you're going to get a C on the paper and sign up to clean the beakers. And that's not setting up students for success in any category. On a more focused level, I think as individual teachers, we're all guilty of this, of stereotyping the students hmm. as this is a difficult student or this is a challenging student or this is yeah. a gifted student. At-risk student. An at-risk student and applying isms to them and making assumptions which are just completely not true. Now, this is a human foible. I'm not saying I'm a particularly bad person or the people who do this are particularly bad. It's a human foible, right. but you have to be continually on guard for it. And I think it's one of the nice things about the Harkness table is that people's personalities come out very quickly and can start to overcome perceived stereotypes. Um, I think another thing that we, we don't do well enough is think about how education falls with a sense of community and a sense of wellness. And this is something we're working on at Stanford. And one of my colleagues, Amy Larimer, is leading the effort on it. We tend to focus on academics and assume that community kind of comes along with it. And that wellness is something that you do when the academics gets overwhelming rather than a holistic view. And I think it teaches a way of thinking about work and education um, that's out of balance and leads to unhappiness. And in a weird way, the No Child Left Behind has, I think, skewed that even further because it's so easy to focus on the academics now. Right. Because the metrics are so clear, even if they're useless. Right. Well, what you say about focusing on community and, and health and wellness taps really well into something I wanted to ask you about, um, which is your involvement in residential life at, at Stanford. I know that you're really involved. Uh, I, I forget exactly what your specific title is. I'm a resident fellow along with my wife. And okay. We live in a, a four-class dorm on the Stanford campus in a lovely apartment that opens out to a student lounge. And it's we've finished four years of that. We're going into our, we have at least two year, more years. We're going to decide this fall how many more after that to, to mm -hmm. sign up for. Um, it's definitely a lifestyle. It's something that I appreciated and learned about from a student perspective at Exeter because we had faculty members who lived in the dorm and they were people you could go to for everything from math homework help to trouble with a girl or whatever the issues were of the sure. day. And it's a lot of fun and a lot of work. We have a 14-member staff, student staff of undergraduates who are the first line um, but our doors open all the time, and we think that if our job is to bring education into the dorm, 
we have to A, build community, which then builds trust, which allows the risk-taking of the difficult conversation. And so by having the door open and opening up our apartment for football games and basketball games and pizza parties and having a fridge stocked with sodas and putting out snacks every night, we can build that trust and eating as many meals with them as we can in the dining hall um, is the prerequisite to the kinds of things we do in the winter and spring quarter, invite interesting people over for dinner and have difficult and challenging and fun conversations. Yeah. We, we do a, a version of Russell Weatherspoon's open mic where mm-hmm. people come for brunch and bring a song or a poem or something to share. And then we talk about that. Uh, we take people on museum visits, uh, go to shows, go to lectures. Um, and, you know, some some things are just super fun, too, and silly, like Corgi Con or <laughs> Comic Con or going to... Is, a, is Corgi Con uh, exactly what it sounds like? It's exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> sounds incredible. And it's, it's a real joy. It's a real pleasure. And I, I said a while ago that it's that I've gotten more tolerant over time, and this has made me even more tolerant, that seeing the range of student diversity in the dorm and in the university, as well as the challenges that you don't see as a classroom teacher, um, and the burdens that many students are bringing with them, that would be enough to beat me down, and yet they're Stanford students. Yeah, Um, very resilient extraordinarily resilient but that doesn't mean that they're not sad or troubled sure from time to time um but it's a lot of fun i know you um you and i have spoken about kind of like the current state of at least what you're seeing like at the college level and like the habits that students you know are developing and and i guess i'm, I'm curious like what what has changed in certain in terms of how you approach what you do in the classroom, like since you ha- saw that, you know, residential life side of things and then the kind of habits that you're witnessing or the things that you feel like students need to, to kind of work on to maintain like that, that emotional health in addition to that academic success. I think the, the biggest thing that we do is we start most classes, if not all, but almost all classes with a check-in. It's something I've adopted even here at summer school. And sometimes that's as simple as how are you doing as we get more trusting, it might be what did you do to how stressed are you and what are you doing about it? Mm-hmm. Um, or how stressed are you and what commitment are you willing to make to this group to do this week to wow. help work on stress? Sometimes it could be um, one of the first classes I often to pair them up and just have them go for a 10 minute walk and share their interests and challenges and expectations for the course and come back and share that. And what it does is it builds trust and community so that then when we're sharing our design schemes, people are very comfortable sharing and saying, I'm struggling with this part. And the other students are comfortable saying, well, why don't you try this? Or why don't you try that? And so it has a pedagogical component to it, but it also has a and I participate in this as well. So I'll share that I'm stressed or I'm not stressed or I had a great weekend or whatever mm-hmm. it is. Um, I'm showing some humility and setting the stage for those Harkness-like conversations where I can step back, uh, that I don't have to be the master in the room 
the all-knowing person. I can be the guy who gets stressed out because there's too much to do and I'm not taking care of myself and here's the things I need to do. Yeah. Um, and they don't hear that a lot from their instructors. So it sets up the pedagogy, but it also sets up hopefully lifelong skills at being reflective around how they're doing and things they need to do to take care of themselves and gives them permission to do it. Yeah. That's the other thing is, you know, and these guys are so driven and they're taking one or two more courses than they have to. They're in sports, they're in drama, they're in orchestra, and they're going to bed at 3 a.m. and getting up at 8 a.m. And they're sleep deprived and they're messed up on their rhythms. And somebody just giving them permission to go to bed early <laughs> can be useful. Yeah. It's going back to this idea of like invitation uh even though you know you think that some certain things don't need to be said or it's not going to make a difference if you say something or invite them to do something or encourage them to do something like for you being able to speak at the harkness table yeah but it goes back to challenging those assumptions and really being proactive and being mindful of what those needs might be and it sounds like what you do just in terms of like checking in or the kind of stuff that you do in the first few days of class it sounds like it's a, it's sort of scaffolding right of like what what is going to happen later on. And as I get to know the students better in those introductory courses, the back end of the course will I'll free up some time to do things that they want to do. Right. And as when I teach students who I've had once or twice before in more advanced courses, um, I don't have to give them interim assignments. I can basically say, here's the day the project is due. You guys organize yourself. We're going to I'll come into class and say, what do you want to do today? Do you want to meet in groups? Do you want to meet as a whole group? Do you want to do a pinup? Some people want to do a pinup. Some people want to do meet as groups. We'll do that. And then I don't have to give assignments because they know what they need to do. Sure. And they trust the group to provide them with straight information. And I'm not jumping all over their process by telling them what to do. Yeah. So in a sense, it works for everyone. Yeah. Makes everyone happy. So for this next question, it's it's kind of a kind of a weird question to ask at this point because I feel like sort of throughout our conversation you've been dropping like these little like tidbits of things that you've learned and things that you've you've taught yourself or have been taught. But I'm I'm curious about if you have like anything that you have reminded yourself throughout your teaching career, or it could just be something that you've really been thinking about lately that you you constantly remind yourself about or tell yourself that helps you just get through the day serve your students better grow as an educator any of that kind of stuff is is totally fair game i'd say it's probably things i've been thinking about in the last year or so and that's to remind myself to just relax (laughs) and enjoy it and if the course takes a left turn for a day it doesn't matter there's good things that come out of that in class yesterday here at exeter we were doing the check-in and we got off track for a little while and i just let it go um and it was delightful to see them being silly at the table and enjoying each other's company yeah and four or five years ago i would have shut that down (laughs) and i would have been would have made me really uncomfortable yeah um and yesterday at the table, I was like, just relax. Right. They're having a good time. They're right. bonding. It's going to be, a. am going to lose a minute, 
out of a 90 or an hour and 45 minute class. Right. But it's going to pay dividends in the last week when they're giving each other support. Um, so I think just relaxing and, and understanding that students are really smart and they know what they need, even if they can't articulate that. Um, and to just let it be and not be overplanned, not be over-focused or over-expectant over around what's going to happen in any class. Yeah, I love that. It's so hard to do, though. It's so hard to relax. Even if you identify as like a relaxed person or a more laid-back or chill person, it's it's surprisingly hard to, to do. I think partially because you're balancing so many different things and you have your own pressure that you're exerting on yourself. And by exerting it on yourself, you're, you're thereby exerting it on your students. But I find myself still struggling with that. And I've definitely had moments where, where I've done, I've done both where I've either like shut down like that, you know, that whatever that the, them just talking to each other or getting off subject um, and moments where I've let it happen. But I think I think more about the moments where I shut it down or I was more focused on like, we have so much I need to accomplish. Um, you know, I have so many things that I need to impart in this lesson. Um, and it's, it's easy to, to lose sight of, of what is valuable, which is them having a, a good experience and, and being in a joyful learning environment, which sometimes requires to not focus on what exactly they're learning, but the kind of relationships they're, you know, cultivating or the kind of conversations they're having that, like you said, you'll see the fruits of that later on, maybe not in the moment and you may even see it in the moment in the sense that there might be a student or two whose rambunctiousness is just excess energy. And yep. you're actually letting them expel that energy. Totally. And then they can recenter for a while. Um, Absolutely. And so it can have a real benefit in the short run. I was not a rambunctious teenager. I wasn't a wrestler or a you know, physical person or yeah. a troublemaker or a smart ass. Um, and so it took me, I mean, I've been teaching for since 1987, um, whatever that is, 30, 31 years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's taken me until this last year to just understand that teenagers are teenagers, particularly teenage boys. Yeah. It's important to keep that in mind though, because you're recognizing them for who they are and that allows you to have a better relationship with them to teach them more effectively and to create an environment in which they can be their authentic selves while still learning and still challenging them where they need to be challenged whether it's on the academic level or Mm -hmm. you know focusing on like developing more mindful habits but yeah it's important to keep that in in mind so i have a little bit of a challenge for you if you are feeling up for a challenge all right i'm intrigued (laughs) <laughs> Excellent. Uh, what I would like you to do is essentially pitch yourself as an educator or capture your essence as an educator to the best of your ability in 30 seconds. So I have a timer and I'm going to throw 30 seconds on the clock and just whatever comes to mind. Don't worry about how smart it sounds or even how accurate it is, I guess. Um, but that's uh, that is the the challenge that you have been presented with. If you choose to accept it, I choose to accept. Wonderful. Okay, so I have thirty seconds. I've thrown on the clock. Do you have any any questions? Nope. Okay, so we are going to go ahead and start. 
in three, two, one, go. I would say that I'm an evolving teacher and that I have come to the conclusion that every student needs something different and every class needs something different. And that the best thing I can do is step back and let the authentic nature of the student and the authentic nature of that class step forward and lead the way. That's great. And you have, uh, you have five seconds left, which is pretty, pretty well done. So what I would like you to do now in the second round is do that again, capture your essence as an educator. Uh, but this time I would like you to do it in 10 seconds. So I'm going to throw 10 seconds on the clock and I'm going to start if you're ready in three, two, one, go. I'm continuing to evolve as a teacher and understand that you just have to let students be students and the classes be classes. Perfect. Now, what I would like you to do for the third and final round is just capture your essence as an educator to the best of your ability using one single word. Learning. It's, <laughs> it's so simple. It's so simple, but it's so perfect. I love that. I love it. Awesome. Well, I think we're uh, rounding out to the uh, to the end here, John. I really appreciate you taking the time to to speak with me. I'm I'm struck by, and one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on the podcast so badly was I I'm struck by how you managed to like imbue this field or this subject matter that to those who are unfamiliar with it might assume that there's like a sort of like I don't know coldness to it <laughs> or like a you know, just like a very black and white sort of like, this is the answer. This is how you do this. And I'm going to impart that wisdom to you um, that you manage to just imbue like this, this sense of like emotional health and focusing on like building relationships and really focusing on learning for the sake of learning. Um, it's something that I've heard from students who have had you that I've, I've met here at Exeter um, that students really appreciate in you. And I just, I find it fascinating and really inspiring the way that you're able to, uh, to do that. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah, awesome. All right, well, thank you once again for joining me, John. Really appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thank you to John for being so thoughtful throughout our conversation. We're off next week, but we will be back on August 1st with a new episode, so stay tuned for that. In the meantime, feel free to go back and listen to any episodes you may have missed. If you enjoyed this episode, I promise you'll find something there that's worth checking out. This podcast was created and hosted by me, John LeMay. Our associate producer is Emily Moeller. Our cover art is by Katie Cooper. And our theme music is You Need a Visa by Really From. Thank you so much for listening, and I hope you'll join me next time for another episode featuring another teacher and another story.